When I first heard about Austin, um, I did what probably many of you did, and I googled what the pancreas is, what the pancreas does, uh, because in high school, in health class, when we talked about different parts of the body, I imagined it was probably one of those situations where I studied real quick the night before, probably did pretty well on the test, but now several years removed, I have no idea what I learned in that class. And a lot of students this year are going to find themselves in that same situation. They're going to learn some things that will slip from their minds as soon as the test is over, if they're lucky, and even sooner than that, if they're unlucky. Uh, But other lessons will endure. Other lessons that are academic will endure. Other lessons they learn from their teachers in terms of being a person, uh, being a part of a community. Um, Other lessons they learn from their friends. Those will endure. And as we think about that, my question today is how do we make sure the joy that we've been talking about in this sermon series will endure? How do we make sure it's not just a fleeting thing, that it's not just something that will pass by us and in a few years we're not going to remember anything about the joy we've been talking about? And maybe right now you're thinking, I don't remember anything about the joy that I experienced in Christ when I came to know him that first time. And so today we're going to talk about How can we maintain that joy? How does it endure? Because we've already said that joy in Christ supersedes disappointment. It supersedes our circumstances. It supersedes life itself. We said joy in Christian unity is based on a right attitude, maintained by right theology, and strengthened by right role models. And that's all well and good, but we need to make sure we can continue going about living that way. And so today we're in Philippians chapter 3. No big surprise there. And as we go through this, we'll talk about how our joy can endure. The first point is that joy in knowing Christ keeps us from failing to find joy elsewhere. So if we want our joy to endure, we need to make sure we're finding it in the right place. And joy in knowing Christ keeps us from failing to find joy elsewhere. This takes us through the first 11 verses of the chapter. And at the very beginning of the chapter, verse 1, Paul says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. So right off the bat, we find out that our joy in the Lord is uh, is protecting. It's a safeguard. Paul says, if you have your joy in the Lord, you're going to be able to withstand some things that I'm about to lay out for you right here. So the joy safeguards us, but safeguards us from what? Uh, Paul turns his attention to false teaching and uh, a works-based righteousness, a righteousness that says it's about what you do, not about who you know. And so verses 2 and 3, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul doesn't really mince words here. He calls these guys dogs, evildoers, and mutilators. He's telling, they're telling the Gentiles, people who are not of Jewish background, that they must become Jewish through circumcision in order to become Christians. That's what's going on here. And Paul says, no, they're telling you that. They're dogs. They're evil workers, they're talking about a false circumcision. As I said, some, some translations call that mutilators because it's calling them to a ritual act of circumcision, literally cutting their body for no reason. Mutilation. 
saying that somehow by doing this, they will be able to become what Christ wants them to be. The term dogs here doesn't refer to a cute little dog like you might have or even to the dog I might have, Chloe. She's little, not cute, but she's cute. Um, (laughs) It's referring to junkyard dogs, the dogs that run wild, the dogs that are just out there. They nip at you, they they, they snip at you. They're out, they're not trying to play catch with you if you get get my drift. They're not looking out for your best interests. They're not gonna be protective. In fact, uh, recently, maybe it's been around before and I just didn't notice it, but I've heard of at least two reports of people who've been bitten by dogs or got saliva in an open wound. And I know at least one of the people had to have amputations because of it. It's that idea, this type of dog, they're they're infecting the, the gospel and it's destructive. He says, so don't listen to that. First of all, safeguard yourself from, from that, there's no joy in knowing Christ if you're just going to mutilate yourself. There's absolutely no joy in Christ in that. And then he goes to an interesting section where he lays out his resume. Uh, again, verse 3, he says, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. It's not about what you do for the flesh. It's all about what you do for Christ Jesus. In fact, Then Paul lays out this resume about his flesh. So beginning in verse 4, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless." He basically lists it and he says, if you have a checklist of everything you need to do to be a good Jewish person, I've done it. Check, check, check. I've marked off the list. I'm your guy if that's what you're looking for. But he says, that's not what matters. That's not what matters. Paul's done everything and yet we've got nothing on Paul. I mean, he can, he can beat any of us at a competition of who has checked off the most marks. And in modern day, it might be more like I, I go to church, I say a prayer once in a while, I read my Bible, or I went to church when I was a kid. We check off our own little lists in our minds. And, and Paul says, it's not about the list. It's not about what you do in the flesh. That's not going to give you any joy. That's going to be failing to find joy in other places. And then verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, so all these things that I had accomplished, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. We get this idea of counting all things lost. We hear it a lot. It's one of those really great verses that we put on pillows and coffee mugs and little wall placards. But to really think about what this word counted means um, gives us the idea of what the word counted means. Counted here doesn't mean, you know, I can, I, I, it's just I, I labeled it as lost. Counted in the original Greek meant to engage in an intellectual process. To engage in an intellectual process means Paul knows what he did. And he took the time to think about it and, and put it up against what, what Christ has done and realizes 
that if we're really going to take the intellectual approach to this, what Paul did means nothing. What Paul did means nothing. It wasn't just a passing thought. He really counted it. He thought about it. And he counted it as nothing. He counts it as loss for the sake of Christ. We need to ask ourselves right at this point, are we this discerning with the value we ascribe to things? With the value we ascribe to what we've done? Paul says, look, I've nailed everything and it doesn't matter. It doesn't hold up against what Christ has done. And yet how often do we try to say, but I've done this, this, and this and expect to suddenly have all sunshine and rainbows? So he says, the right source of joy protects us. It safeguards us. Then Paul lays out this resume and says, even that isn't enough. But then we see that we must be willing to stake a claim that joy truly only comes from Christ and not from us. It's not enough to just say it, not enough to just think about it. We have to really claim it. We have to realize that we conform to Christ and not the other way around. Let's look at verses 8 through 11. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. We must conform to Christ, not the other way Around. In other words, if I had to summarize this section of Scripture, I would say Paul wants us to stop being the center of the gospel. Paul wants us to stop being the center of the gospel. Stop trying to be what the gospel is all about. Because there is a me-centered gospel out there that is preached, and it's popular, and it sounds really good. It tickles our ears, and it tricks our hearts. A me-centered gospel will preach health, wealth, and prosperity, thinking if we check off those lists, then God is going to serve us. If we check off those lists, if we do everything right, then God is going to come through for us in the way we want him to. The problem is when that fails, we don't know what to do because this God we're supposed to have faith in didn't deliver the way we wanted him to deliver. And suddenly we can see where the joy just vanishes from that sort of a situation. There is no joy in Christ in a me-centered gospel. The true gospel says, regardless of my health, wealth, or prosperity, I will do what Christ calls me to do. Christ is at the center. We are his servants. And when he seems to not do what we want, we remember our position. He's God. We're not. We become small. Christ becomes big. So that even in those moments when things aren't going away, we do have something bigger, something more trustworthy to look at, something more faithful, and that is Christ. I want to look at these verses again and, and really think about what knowing Christ means to Paul. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
All things are lost because the value of knowing Christ surpasses everything. And then look at what that knowledge means. It's not just a, a, a head knowledge. It's really, really a special knowledge. It's, it's Paul taking the time to have a relationship, a relationship to think about getting to know Christ. I think about when I was dating Laura, you know, each time I, I got to be with her, I was excited about it. I was excited about it. We got to know each other more and more. And now we do things for each other and, and, we, and we develop that relationship. And Paul is saying, I've developed a relationship. I've come to really appreciate what Christ has done. So in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul recognizes that Christ is worth knowing and Christ is worth knowing the way Christ intended to be known. We rejoice in knowing Christ not rejoice in Christ doing things for us. We become small. Christ becomes big. And then Paul takes us to the next section and he says that joy in knowing Christ is actually part of a process. Uh, so you don't have to be perfect to have joy. You don't have to have arrived to have joy. You have to be part of this process. And remember, in the previous two weeks, we talked about how this process is part of sanctification, not, not where we go up a step and therefore God loves us a little bit more and we go up another step and God loves us a little bit more, but instead we're on this trajectory where we're becoming holier, we're becoming more Christ-like, and therefore we love God more because of what we're getting to learn about him and how we're relating with him it's not that he loves us anymore. So joy in knowing Christ is part of this process and going through the process produces joy. Time invested in building a relationship always produces joy. The time spent with Laura produced joy in me. The time you spend with a coworker who soon becomes a really good friend produces joy in you. Let's read verses 12 through 16. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on that idea of going through the process so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the gulf for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. Paul has been a Christian for a really long time at this point. They think probably about three decades worth. He's been a Christian. He's been ministering to people. Uh, we know that he became a Christian on the road to Damascus, and he's had a powerful ministry ever since. So he's been doing a lot um, since that time. And some of you have been Christians for a really long time. 
Some of you have known Christ since you were children. Some of you have known, known Christ for decades, like Paul. And yet Paul still had joy. Do those of us who have been in Christ for a long time still have joy? Do we still get a sense of, 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 of just excitement at the thought of what Christ has done for us? Do we still maintain a joy because of what Christ did? If not, then we've probably given up on this process. See, Paul says, I haven't attained it yet. I haven't gotten there yet. I still have work to do. I still, I still have a ways to go. He didn't say, well, I've done this, this, and this, and I'm just going to coast through till God calls me home. He was on a trajectory. He was part of a process, and he had joy in Christ by being a part of that process. We need to remember that plateaus in our spiritual growth are not part of God's plan. God can seem quiet. God can seem like, like he's not doing anything, but most likely that's part of our development too. Plateaus in spiritual growth are not part of God's plan. We go through the process. It produces joy. So if we're not finding that joy, maybe we're not actively involved in the process. An important factor about this process, though, is it's based on one thing. Verse 13, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. There's one thing he's focused on, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what is ahead. Tim Tebow is kind of a unique individual in the sports world. Um, he's able to to do fantastic at, at college football. Then he was in the NFL, and now he's playing professional baseball. Most athletes aren't like that. Most athletes focus on one thing. They have one thing they're really good at, and that's what they devote themselves to. In the same way, Paul is devoted to one thing, to one thing, to being who he needs to be for Christ. That should be the goal of Christians, to have just one thing in mind. One thing that we strive through. Remember, a couple weeks ago, we said about the goals that we make for ourselves, if that's all there is, leaves us feeling empty. Because once we attain the goal, we have nothing else to do. Or if we don't attain the goal, then we're depressed. So why not have a goal that is Christ-centered, Christ-focused, one thing that we call ourselves to? Paul focused on one thing. And that one thing was verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 13 tells us how he did it. He recognized his current status and, he and his desired status. He, he forgot what was behind him, looked ahead to what was coming, and he pressed on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, he worked at it. He worked at it. He wasn't working to earn his salvation. He was working on this process, working on getting to know God better, working to change his life so that he could honor God more. So one of the great things about Facebook and Twitter is we can share some great quotes. The problem with sharing great quotes is they don't change us unless we let them. Hearing a sermon doesn't change us, change us unless we let it. 
Too often we sit in church and we, we hear a sermon, we, we sing worship songs, we think, wow, that's a really good point, or we're in a discussion group and, wow, that, that's really good. But if you've been attending any of the classes I've taught, I tell you often that one of the things I hate about classes is we can talk about the content, but then we get to the application part and nothing ever changes. We hear biblical truth after biblical truth after biblical truth, but we never apply it. We never work at it. Paul worked at it. Paul worked at it. He pressed on toward the, toward the goal. He reached for what was ahead. And then we get to verse 15. And if you've plateaued in your, in your faith, if you've not grown recently, you probably need to really focus on verse 15. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. If you need somewhere to start with applying biblical truth to your life, believe that God can reveal it to you. Believe that God can show you that, yes, you are one of those people with an attitude of a plateaued faith. You're not excited about me anymore. You're going through the motions. And then get back into the word, get back into classes, get back into community of faith. And if you say, well, reading the Bible is hard, I don't know how to do it, then come to the class we're going to start in September. Learn how to read the Bible and get something out of it every single time. So if we've plateaued, we need to focus on that verse 15 and pray that God would reveal it to us. Because verse 16 tells us something important too. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. To that same standard to which we have attained. If you are a Christian, whether you're a plateaued Christian, a growing Christian, or or, or a backsliding Christian, you've attained a status in Christ. Christ has declared you to be who he wants you to be. He says... I have saved you, not because of what you've done, but I've saved you. And now as a saved child of God, you need to pay attention to your status. You need to pay attention to your status. Too many of us ignore it. And that then feeds into the idea of a plateaued faith because we forget that I am a child of God, that he has called me to a life, not a death. He has called me to excitement and joy, not to drudgery and not and not to shame. He says, even in the midst of your bad situations, remember Paul is in house arrest when he's writing this. Paul's under house arrest. He's chained to a Roman guard all day long, all night long. And he's still telling us how to be joyful. Joy in Christ supersedes disappointment, supersedes circumstances, supersedes life itself because we've attained this status as one who is saved by Christ. And so we can't ignore that. We can't ignore that. So joy in knowing Christ keeps us from failing to find joy elsewhere. Joy in knowing Christ is part of a process. And joy in knowing Christ is contagious. If you're ever around somebody who is actually happy that Christ has saved them, you're going to know about it. They'll say things like, praise the Lord, and you might feel awkward. And that's okay. But joy in knowing Christ is contagious. It needs to be shared. It should be shared. And so verses 17 to the end of this chapter. Brethren, 
join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the by the exertion of the power that he is even to subject all things to himself. Joy in knowing Christ is contagious. Paul related all of his failures previously and now refers to his progress here in verse 17. He says, join me in following my example. Walk according to the pattern that you have seen in us. In us probably means Paul, it probably means Timothy, probably means Epaphroditus, the people we talked about last week, those right models who strengthen our joy in our Christian unity. And so Paul related his failures, now tells about his progress. He says, your joy is strengthened by right role models, so, so come along with us. And we need to even remember that this is not at all prideful. This is not Paul saying, well, look at me. I've got it all together. If we paid attention at all to this letter, we understand that. We understand where he's coming from. He's already told us he's about as bad as you could be. And he's saying, now Christ has done a work in me. So follow my example as a result of what Christ has done, not anything that I'm doing on my own. He's speaking from experience with Jesus Christ, not speaking for, from conceit for his status. And this is very important because to follow the example of someone, to have those right, right role models really makes it easier on us. We talked about that last week, how it gets really difficult sometimes to have joy in Christ or joy in Christian unity when we feel like we're the only one. So instead we acknowledge somebody who is doing it right. We follow them. They're a model for us. Paul sent them Timothy and Epaphroditus. And here he's saying Paul himself is a model also. And this reminded me of when I was a counselor at outdoor school. Outdoor school was a wonderful experience, probably one of my favorite things about Penn State, where I got to be a counselor for a group of fifth graders, and we would take them into the woods for a week, overnight camp, and uh, teach them about nature, teach them all sorts of things. And one of the things we did was orienteering or, or how to use a compass. And so we talked about using a compass and we said that when you're lost in the woods, if you can find the direction that you need to head, you should look for a static object somewhere far in the distance, but in the direction that you want to head. Because that static object won't move, even if you kind of veer off and you keep focused on that one thing, eventually you'll get there and you'll move in a straight line. It serves as a guidepost. It serves as something to focus on. He's saying Paul was their guidepost. Paul was further, further along. He had been through it all. He had a great experience with Christ. He's calling them to, to, to hone into him, follow his example, not because it was the ultimate destination, but because it got them going in the right direction. So Paul related his failures. He refers to his progress, calls them to follow him, and then he gets emotional. Then he gets emotional. And we see that emotional conviction is convicting. Emotional conviction is convicting. Verses 18 and 19. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping 
that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Paul is weeping. I want you to think of of the strongest person you know, the person you would never expect to see cry, and then you walk in one day and they're weeping. It makes us feel a certain way when we see that. It, it, It gets to us. Paul's kind of like that because Paul's been through a whole lot. He, he was tough enough that he could, he could stone Christians before he became a Christian himself. He, he's, he's tough enough that he's endured being in prison. He's in, in, in house arrest. We'll find out as, as the life of Paul goes on that, that he'll be beheaded and he's going to be just treated in, in awful ways. He's a really tough guy. And here he is weeping because there are those who are enemies of the cross of Christ and... It's not just that they're enemies of the cross of Christ, but he even goes on to talk about what's going to come of them. Their end is destruction. Their God is their appetite. They're, they're, they're happy to just worship what they see. What they want, they get, and that's all they, all they seek. Their glory is in their shame. Even though they're, they're not living up to their best, they are so happy in it. They're so lost that they glory in their own shame. They set their minds on earthly things. They don't look beyond. They don't look above. They're missing out. It brought Paul to tears. Paul's weeping that there are people who are going to experience this. First question is, do we weep that there were people who would experience this? whose end is destruction. Does that bother us? The thought of people not embracing and even attacking the gospel brought this man to tears. It's that important. Because true joy, when you're truly happy, you want to tell people about it. And if you've ever, if you've ever gone and tried to tell someone about your joy and they just shoot you down, it deflates your balloon pretty quickly. It's like running into a brick wall. Paul's got this joy he wants to share. He can't wait to tell it to whoever. And these people not only missed it themselves, they were messing it up for other people as well. They focused on the things that Paul had previously said counted as worthless. And it brought Paul to tears. And so again, we think of our values. We count our values. We count the things that have meaning to us. And can we say they really hold up? Do they really hold up to what Christ has done? You say, we keep talking about this joy in knowing Christ. And I understand he saved me from my sin. But where does the joy actually come from? It comes from the fact that Christ provides a hope that the world can't match. Christ provides a hope that the world cannot match. There's so much worthless stuff that we worry about on earth. Paul calls us to not focus on what is worthless because we're only here for a moment. 
We're only here in the, for the, the twinkling of an eye, like, like, a, like a vapor, like a wisp of smoke. We don't focus on what is worthless. And he talks about their citizenship. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. He's literally capitalizing on the idea that the Philippians are a colony of Rome. They recognize this terminology. They know that even though they live in Philippi, they're actually Roman citizens. And he says in the same way, you live on this earth, but you're citizens of heaven. You live on this earth, but you're citizens of heaven, and therefore you need to honor your citizenship. We're to be a colony of heaven on earth. And if that's the case, then we have a grand hope of glory. A grand hope that in the end we will be with Christ. And we need to believe, we need to have confidence that that supersedes anything on this earth. It supersedes our disappointment, it supersedes our circumstance, it supersedes life itself. The hope of glory is a great reason to have joy. It's a great reason to not focus on things that are going to leave us feeling empty. It's a great reason to be part of this process, to want to be more and more and more like Christ. And it's a great reason to, to be contagious, to tell others about Christ, to be bothered when people don't care about him, to be bothered when people only care about earthly things because they're missing out on that hope of glory. They're missing out on the joyous news that Jesus has saved us from eternal death. Billy Graham is quoted as saying, I've read the last page of the Bible and it all turns out okay in the end. That's our hope. It all turns out okay in the end. God's got this. So we can either focus on the earthly things and be really worried about what Trump is going to tweet next or be really worried about what what the Koreans are going to do or be really worried about what's going to happen in our kids' schools this week. Or we can take that before God, give it to him, because we are in this world, but we're citizens of another land. We're citizens of heaven. And so we need to live according to the hope of our glory and have joy in Christ in the process. So how do we make sure that this joy we've been talking about endures? We make sure our joy is in knowing Christ, not in other pursuits. We stay engaged in the process and cherish getting to know Christ better. We enjoy the process of building a relationship with him. And we share our knowledge of Christ because our joy is contagious. We're so happy about it. We want to tell people about it. And we trust that it all turns out okay in the end. It's on the last page of your Bible. God has promised it for his people. We trust him. We praise him for that. And we believe that there is truly nothing better than knowing our Savior. Nothing can compare to it. Knowing Jesus is what it's all about. Knowledge matters. Don't worry about knowing the earthly things. Know your Savior.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Paul has written to these people that he loves and he doesn't want them to miss out on anything. And as I think about that, I think of how much we miss out on, how much I miss out on, because I do tend to get distracted by the earthly things. I get distracted by what's going on around me, what's going on in my own life. I get distracted by the things I want, get distracted by the relationships I want. I even get distracted by myself, the things I've been able to check off the list as if it somehow makes me better. But Paul tells his friends, tells this beloved group of people that no, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter at all. Nothing compares to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. May we believe that. May we rejoice in that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.